Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Sinwai Keen. The Berkeley Art Museum and Pacific Film Archive at the University of California, Berkeley, is presenting Matrix 284, Sinwai Keen, The Story Changing, the artist's first U.S. exhibition. BAM PFA's exhibition includes Sin's two most recent video works, The Breaking Story from 2022 and The Dreaming End from 2023. The show is curated by Victoria Sung and is on view through March 10th. BAM PFA's eight-page exhibition brochure features a conversation between Sung and Sin, and we'll have a link on manpodcast.com. Sin often uses speculative fiction and narrative in performance and in filmic works. Informed by their experience in London's drag scene, Sin's work asks questions about history, the present, and the construction of reality and factuality. Sin was shortlisted for the UK's Turner Prize in 2022. Their work has been shown at museums such as Fondazione Memo in Rome, the Centre for Contemporary Art in Geneva, Somerset House London, the British Museum also in London, Palais de Tokyo in Paris, the 2019 Venice Biennale, and plenty more. On the second segment, Jacqueline Kiyomi Gork. If you enjoy the show, please give it a five-star rating and a review wherever you download the program. Sinway Keen, after the break. It's the Getty Villa Museum's 50th anniversary, and you're invited to celebrate with the year of captivating exhibitions. Now on view, check out Sculpted Portraits from Ancient Egypt, presenting vivid sculptures of officials of the court and priesthood. On April 10th, discover the mighty deities, brave heroes, and fantastic beings that adorn the terracotta vessels of the ancient Greeks, the Maya in Central America, and the Moche of Northern Peru in Picture Worlds, Greek, Maya, and Moche Pottery. Then on November 6th, explore the ancient land of Thrace, comprising present-day Bulgaria and parts of Romania, home to a tribal culture that produced superb gold, silver, and bronze works used in aristocratic pursuits, such as warfare, horsemanship, and banqueting. From ancient artifacts to lush Roman-style gardens, there's always something beautiful to discover at the Getty Villa Museum. Plan your visit and book free reservations today at getty.edu. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents the West Coast premiere of Only the Young, Experimental Art in Korea, 1960s through 1970s. On view from February 11th through May 12th, this exhibition gives unprecedented insight into a vibrant moment after the Korean War when Korean artists rebelled against artistic limits, embracing bold and provocative practices. For more information on the exhibition and accompanying programs, visit hammer.ucla.com. Edu. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Kehinda Wiley, An Archaeology of Silence. This new body of work from Kehinda Wiley, one of the world's most celebrated contemporary artists, is on view in Houston for the first time. Through his large-scale paintings and sculptures, he confronts the silence surrounding systemic violence against black and brown people. He uses the visual language of the fallen figure, with reference to Western European historical art and iconic portrayals of heroes, martyrs, and saints. In the artist's words, quote, the new portraits depict young black men and women in position of vulnerability that tell a story of survival and resilience, revealing the beauty that can emerge from the horrific. This exhibition is on view through May 27th, 2024 at the MFAH. Visit mfah.org slash Kahinda Wiley to learn more.
And we're back. Sinwai Keen, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me, Tyler. What happened first, your interest in drag or your interest in making drag core to a body of artwork? My interest in drag came first. It was very separate at first from my art practice. I entered into it really as like a, it was something that I felt driven towards, something that I wanted to do since I became aware of it, I think. And it wasn't until many years later, until I did my my master's, that I found a way actually to bring it into my art practice in a way that I felt comfortable with. Were you hesitant about that? Was it something you weren't sure that you wanted in, I don't know, like all the major parts of your life? Yeah. I think I wasn't really sure, you know, what I was doing with it for a long time. I, I started doing drag in like 2012 or 2013, and I didn't realize it at the time, but I was kind of developing this character that would become more solidified towards like 2018 or so. And yeah, it was something that, you know, looking back on it now, I realized I was really working out my relationship with Western femininity with this thing that I had been really socialized to want and using drag as a medium to like unpick what I wanted and what other people wanted from me. And I think that I still use drag in the same way, but in different ways. But it wasn't until I started making films and specifically like narrative films that I felt comfortable bringing drag into my practice in these spaces that were not queer. I was a little bit hesitant to bring it into art spaces because I was afraid of it, you know, I don't know, being exoticized or fetishized or just taken out of context. Was there an artist or a theorist or a poet or a teacher or or some other person in your life or that you received through a book or whatever that gave you permission, as it were, to migrate drag into your practice, art practice? I think it was a real combination of things. I mean, I did, I had a queer tutor in my undergrad, Jordan Baseman, who I showed him some pictures of, of what I did on the weekends in the evenings of my drag. And, and he was like, so have you ever heard of Judith Butler? Mm. <laughs> At the time I hadn't actually. Ah, uh, undergrad yeah. years. Yeah. But I would say that it was like maybe, you know, reading like, what is it? visual pleasure and narrative cinema, like Laura Mulvey, that definitely made me think about ways to bring these images and and what I was doing, which felt like, you know, like they could be misinterpreted, like into my work in a way that I felt like I had agency over. But I think like the largest influence on my practice has been uh, science fiction authors, specifically of like a certain era, like Ursula Le Guin and Octavia Butler and Samuel R. Delaney. These authors that were using like worlds of fantasy and science fiction in order to talk about like what is actually going on and to kind of create like an escapism that was more than that. That was like, you know, creating like this other world that you could look back on your everyday life with, with like a changed perspective. And that is like still what I try to do, not only with my drag, which I think about as like an embodied speculative fiction, but also with the worlds that I am creating in my work that I want to immerse people in. What is the relationship between science fiction and drag that works for you? That, that you know, what is the thing that bridges the two and clicks? This is something that I think took me a while to to figure out myself. When I was in school, I had lots of like, you know, quote unquote, separate interests that were like, 
my research practice, which was like just like all science fiction and, you know, like theorists who are using science fiction, you know, like I think about the cyborg manifesto as, as a science fiction. And then I had my drag practice and yeah, it took me a while to bridge all these things. But I, I realized that, yeah, exactly. I, I use drag as a fantasy. It's like a, an embodied fantasy that I create that, I mean, I'll give you an example. So like when I first started doing drag and I went out, I realized that like when I looked completely different, when I was like this fantasy embodiment, this construction of, of like this parody of, of white femininity, people treated me different. You know, I would, I would walk through the, the club and usually I'd have to kind of really elbow my way through. But, you know, when I was this other person, you know, the, the path just cleared, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and you liked it. And I, of course, um, <laughs> you know, but, but there was the other aspect of it, which was like, people had no idea what I looked like underneath, you know? So being in drag made me realize how people saw me differently in an everyday context. And that was this other, you know, fantasy embodiment. But through that embodiment, I changed my, my reality. And this reality was this view from elsewhere where I could kind of look back at my everyday life and see actually what had been given to me and like what I wanted to take on. And I think that's, you know, that is what science fiction does. I think about like the dispossessed by Ursula Le Guin, where like one of the worlds that you're in is this like anarcho-syndicalist world. And reading the book, you have this feeling of what it would be like to live in this, in this other like sociopolitical system. And then you know, you then go to like the capitalist world in the same novel and you can see how grotesque it is. And then you close the book and you're back in the capitalist world again and you see the world differently. So, you know, this is how I think about the potentials of, of drag and, and science fiction and fantasy and how they can be and how they are the same for me in many ways. One more question about drag. Mm. Are there art historical wieldings of drag that interest you? The one that came to mind for me while I was watching Dreaming the End, surely because that work is soaked with Italy, is Michelangelo's Donny Tondo, which presents a man because it was a man who modeled for the painting in Drag is Mary. Or Mary is in, in Drag is Him, I guess. Mm. I guess both. <laughs> yeah, I actually didn't know about that reference until you just mentioned it. But I mean, yeah, there, there, there are so many examples of you know, like when I was in Rome shooting this film, I, you know, was surrounded by lots of art, art history. And my hosts at Fondazione Memo really, you know, they were telling me about all of these instances of queerness or even transness that I didn't realize existed that, you know, kind of were right under my nose. Or I'm thinking about, I mean, I didn't know, for example, that like the Mona Lisa is like maybe a trans woman or, you know, something around that. I also didn't realize that Caravaggio was definitely gay. Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> lovers 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 believed to be in the paintings. Yeah. I mean, I you know, like growing up I, I remember seeing like Frida Kahlo paintings and her kind of representations of gender. A little more recently in contemporary art, like Shuli Chang and her films and how she kind of wields gender and science fiction been really inspirational to me. I remember encountering like Orlan when I was uh, in school 
really being inspired at the kind of boundary between performance and the body being broken down. Yeah, I think in reference to drag, though, maybe one of the most or the most influential things for me have been, you know, just Western iconographies of femininity and people who have embodied that. One of my main inspirations for my drag character, my, my first drag character was Amanda Lepore, who was a club kid in the 80s and or was it the 80s and, you know, is still still on the New York party circuit. But yeah, it was this, I think I've been very inspired by examples of like, as I said, Orlan, but also like Amanda Lepore of, of this blurring of the distinction of like, what is performance and what is authenticity? And, you know, and I, I still think about that in my work as one of the binaries that I'm trying to to undo and, and how that relates to other binaries like fantasy and reality. Warhol's wig, what is performance mm-hmm. and what is authenticity and representation of self in the work? with wig you just referenced the construction of reality and a lot of your work like a whole lot of your work addresses the word real the characters say it the narrator says it we see representations of the word in the work once or twice it's obviously a word and a concept and a construction that you think a lot about what was your pathway to interest in the question or actuality of real? I think maybe gender was like a gateway for me to start thinking about realities. Yeah, as a, like early on in my art practice, I think that, you know, realizing how gender is socialized, but, you know, I had been told that, you know, as everybody is, that it's a fact, was like very revealing to me. I I wrote one of my dissertations about that it was like it was about you know science fiction and reality and part of the essay was looking at you know examples of science fiction and artists who are using it like Shuli Chang like I mentioned but it was also looking at examples in science of like a scientist like um, Joan Roughgarden who were kind of presenting like a revisionist theories of sexual selection and talking about how you know, these narratives, these stories that were taught about gender, they become reified because, you know, scientists are also storytellers and come to data sets with questions that they already have answers to in their minds. And so, you know, they find the answers that they're looking for, they project their own experiences onto things. And then these perspectives get cemented into textbooks and taught in schools and fact is fact and you know human brains are plastic so then we start to become the things that we are and this is how or an example of how storytelling not only represents but creates reality you know humans are like the only animals that completely construct the environment in which our brains are shaped and grow so the stories that we tell are very powerful and so yeah that was i think one of the first instances of really like looking around and understanding that there are multiple realities in the world and that realities are constructed. Then I came to Taoism and the allegory of the dream of the butterfly, which was something that I think helped me to expand my thinking more past gender into other other ways that our consciousness is divided into binaries with the dream of the butterfly, which is a, 
an allegory in Taoism where a philosopher has a dream that he's a butterfly, which is so vivid. When he, he, when he wakes up, he's no longer sure whether he is a man dreaming he's a butterfly or a butterfly dreaming he's a man. And this felt like a really good example of how we can be so sure of things when we haven't seen the other side of them. So, you know, that was a moment in my in my in myself in my practice where i started thinking about non-binary past gender into thinking about yeah the binary of fantasy and reality and performance and authenticity and self and other and dreaming and waking you know and then i started doing research into quantum mechanics and quantum entanglement this is something wait, that why? is present in wait how how why sorry got to interrupt how how and why <laughs> i think i've i've you know I've, I've always been interested in in questions about the universe, like as somebody who creates universes, but also, you know, just like when you're growing up and people tell you that the universe is always expanding and you're like, well, what is it expanding into? Like, how does that work? So I read A Brief History of Time and, you know, I can't tell you that I understand all of it, but I think that like these, these questions of like what actually what actually is the universe and how, you know, how the things like uh, the fact that like time is not, it's not fixed. Like everybody has a different experience of time and depending on you walk where, like where you are. Or, I mean, personally, I think like what mood you're in or, but the thing that I got out of quantum entanglement was that, you know, there is no underlying objective reality that we're uncovering, which is, you know, what we, what humans thought that we were doing certainly during the enlightenment period. But, you know, the fact that reality we're realizing more and more is something that is, you know, that, that, that is realized as we agree on what it is, you know, as I was saying before, it's, it's these stories that we agree are real. Maybe leaving science for a moment, but kind of staying in arts interest in, in the real, I have to ask if you've been, informed by or interested in the relationship between Trump Loy, particularly Trump Loy painting, and its winks at, at reality. Yeah. I mean I think it's definitely there in my in my unconscious. I often find that I am like influenced directly or indirectly by paintings. You know, there's there are direct references to famous paintings in a lot of my films. And sometimes but, like know, representations of the paintings themselves. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the Trump Loy probably comes in more with my with my with my face painting. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. So your face when you say face painting, what you are referencing for the listener is the way you, uh faces are made up in your work. Yes. Faces of my, humans my, are made up in your work. Yes. Uh my face almost always. Yeah, the way that I paint my face. The paintings that I do on my face. The two works that are on view at Berkeley feature characters wearing the same facial makeup, even though they aren't necessarily the same character in the two works. Yeah. Um, and so there, it's a design that includes the colors red, yellow, and blue, the classic art historical primaries, plus a few extra eyes because, you know, why not? Why did you want to maintain that? painting that face across multiple works? Well, in my practice, I use 
individual characters to explore like certain themes or strands of research or like certain binaries that I'm trying to undo. So in the past few years, you know, the years that these works that are in the show were completed, I was really focusing on or making works with these two characters. The first one is called The Storyteller. And the storyteller is the character with the kind of multiple planets within planets on the face. And the second character is called Change, which is the character with the butterfly with the many eyes that's kind of flying from like a day to a night setting. So the storyteller is a character that I use to think about how storytelling exists in culture and how it not only represents but creates reality and how it creates binaries in the act of storytelling and also trying to undo the kind of structure of narratives that we're used to and change as a character that I use to try to embody the fact that everything is always changing and the only constant that there is really is change and embodying kind of a spirit of really stepping into that and changing with change. And in working with these two characters, I am... I really, you know, in a in a literal way, I'm trying to bring about like change through the act of storytelling or in relate in these relationship in, in this character relationship to yeah, to to think about in a embodied way how to bring about change through storytelling. So like specifically in Dreaming the End, which is the work that's projected in the screening room, and like that work was really trying to think about cycles of of storytelling you know, how narratives, how we arrive into narratives and before we're aware of them, we embody them and then we reproduce them in so many ways in language and of course the literal stories that we tell and costume and you know gesturally, all of these things. So the characters in both of these works, they kind of transform in and out of each other and, you know, this the, the works are both cyclical and they repeat, but you know, I think in working or in, in bringing these characters together and through each other again and again and again, I am really trying to like instigate, you know, for myself and for everybody else, this urgency or this sense of, of change. And also, I guess, feeling trapped in cycles. Sorry to zag back. I don't mean to be disjunctive, but I wanted to ask one more thing about the relationship between Trump Loy and still life painting and, and things in your work. There are a lot of apples in your work, a whole lot of apples. There are a lot of apples in art history, whether that's the Adam and Eve story as represented by painters, whether that's Dutch still life, eh, maybe not Dutch, but, but certainly still life painting, or whether that's, you know, Cezanne. Why so many apples? I think when I was in Rome thinking about, you know, the film that I was making, biblical references were like unavoidable. Mm. And, you know, thinking about storytelling and you know, as, as like a way that like knowledge exists, I was thinking about the apple and I was thinking about the apple as like a, as like a, a symbol of like knowledge, but like of eating the apple is like a, you know, becoming aware, which, you know, is like a, a moment that has happened to me so many times in my life where, you know, as I was saying earlier, it's like this, this moment of becoming aware of the other side of things and then seeing a larger picture. Or a moment where you start to like question your surroundings and like what you've been told. So the apple is, yeah, symbolic for me of becoming aware and it exists in the film. The character change kind of arrives into this lavish dining room and is presented with this apple. And as the character eats it, 
they start to question what is what they're being told and you know what their surroundings are and their place in it and they start to wonder and it's at that point that they kind of exit that world and enter into this kind of other world in the film which is like an outdoor world where they start to unpack things yeah i think there's another moment in the film where one of the characters i i wrote in the birth of one of the characters and as the character is kind of born and they start to use their voice for the first time and start to use language for the first time to understand where they are and what's going on they're surrounded by these apples these kind of slightly rotting apples that are around them so you know i wanted to connect those two moments of becoming aware in the film i also love that the apples on the dining table are futuristically stylized to within an inch of their former life um <laughs> sliced and geometrically rearranged in ways yeah. that are far beyond anything that like Cranach um imagined yeah those, um, are, those are michelin star <laughs> apples escher, escher apples yes yes did you do them i did not cut them myself but i sent the the props the props guide a youtube tutorial of what how to do it (laughs) (laughs) i love that we will make sure somehow we have a still of one of those apples on manpodcast.com they're pretty glorious another way you advance complications around reality and drag is with the way audio works within your works so you lip sync and the things the characters say is recorded in i presume a studio Within the, the filmic works, we see the character talking in, say, a cavernous building with hard surfaces, but there's none of the sound bounce we might expect or our ear expects because it's been recorded in a studio and you're lip syncing. Same, same thing works out of doors where there's none of the voice lost to you know the wide open spaces of nature. There's no sound of birds or whatever. The complication of voice, if you will, seems like a really mindful drag construction. How did you arrive at that as a technique that you wanted to use and use again? You know, I think you kind of just mentioned it. Uh, lip syncing is, is, a, is a drag technology of embodiment. I think it's always been something that there's, there's something magical about connecting a body with another voice. And I think there's like something a little bit surreal that happens when somebody is like lip syncing and really embodying that voice that is not coming out of them. When I started to do kind of longer performances, like not in drag spaces, I chose to pre-record my voice and then lip sync to it because I wanted to detach the voice from my body a little bit. You know, I wanted it to seem like the voice was like coming from everywhere. And I continued to do that in my films because I want people to always kind of question like who is speaking and who's being spoken to and, you know, where the voice and the, you know, the knowledge and the language that's in that voice is coming from. But actually in Dreaming the End, in that film, there's like, I recorded some parts on set for the first time ever. Oh. So... There is one of the characters, 
one of the characters in this dining room scene where the storyteller and Change are speaking to each other. Change's voice is pre-recorded and lip-synced and the storyteller's voice is re- recorded live. The voice is like digitally altered afterwards, but that's recorded live. And as well in the scene with the apples on the ground where this character is born and they're using their voice for the first time, that was also recorded live. And that was uh, the first time, yeah, the first time that I uh, recorded my voice on set. So there's kind of the characters using their voice, you know, for the first time. But I actually was using my voice on set delivering Mm. monologue like that for the first time. I don't know how tall you are. We can't tell in the films. But one of the impacts of the way you use characters' voice in the films is the characters seem bigger. They seem more superhuman almost. Is that any of your intent? Definitely. I'm relatively petite, I would say. Or, you know, I'm five foot five. I think people always expect expect me to have been taller when I meet them. It always, it, you know, it, it happens when I used to be on the drag circuit as well. I, you know, come out not wearing seven inch heels and a, and a really tall wig and suddenly I'm, you know. Everybody expects somebody on a screen to be bigger than they really are. Ask Tom Cruise. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for sure. I, I want my characters to be like larger than life and, um, there are so many different technologies in filmmaking that allow me to do that. Uh, this next question is about something I know nothing about, so I hope I ask it in a way that makes sense. You did an interview, I think, last uh, in 2022 with White Review, and it's a really good interview. It's, it's an unusually generous artist interview. And in that interview, you talk about how Cantonese opera is and was important to your mother and then, and then to you. Forgive me. What distinguishes Cantonese opera from other performance, other operas, and why did it land with you? Yeah, it was actually my grandmother who had the mm. um, interest in Cantonese opera. She got into it after she moved to after she moved to Toronto with my grandfather, and she found a community center, and they had Cantonese opera singing groups, and she joined that, and so I. I spent a lot of time growing up in my grandparents' house, and so I was really always with her when she was when she was singing uh, with like karaoke style with her TV, and she would bring me along to the community center. But I, yeah, I remember this being like watching these kind of these these operas. You know, you'd have the a film of of the opera on the screen with the kind of karaoke lyrics going along. So I saw all the visuals of the, the opera and I remember, you know, seeing uh, women who are dressed as men and men dressed as women, mostly women dressed as men, to be honest, playing like romantic roles opposite other women and feeling like this was like very queer. And there was kind of some kind of like transgressing of boundaries that was happening here in a way that really, I think, imprinted on me. But bringing it into my work, I think something that is so interesting about Cantonese and Peking opera is how distinct the roles and the archetypes are. So there's like, I think, five major 
different roles and variations on them. You have like the the dan, which is the female role, the shen, which is the male role. Those are the two lead roles. And then you have the chu, which is the clown role, and the jing, which is the warrior role. And each of these different styles, each of these different kinds of characters, they have extremely distinct makeup styles. Like the performers, they often, you know, they, they do their own makeup. So they learn all of these, you know, they, they do them themselves and they will like, it's not only the makeup, but also the, the gestural styles, the costumes, the style of vocalization. Some of the roles have acrobatics are part of that role. And you just kind of have this acrobat that this, this one character that just does, you know, acrobatics and nobody else does. So and and these gestural styles and the vocal styles and everything are so distinct that like you know there were different kinds of schools that the characters would go to, or the people would go to to learn how to become these characters and once you are this character you kind of that's your role and you don't really do other ones and you could be you know throughout chinese history there's been moments where it was only men allowed on stage only women allowed on stage you know anybody could be any one of these things but you learn how to become the thing and then you practice that so these kinds of very clear and distinct roles that anybody could could take on and become really made me think about you know predetermined scripts and societal roles and that link was I don't know it, it felt so natural that it really felt very natural to bring these influences of Cantonese opera that I had grown up with into the work very directly Two more things. I want to ask something about the breaking story, which comes along at a moment in our global life where actor in which actors such as the Russian government and Fox News are primary and, and are impacting events around us. The breaking story, which features six characters who appear to be sitting at what reads to the viewer as like a TV news desk type set up, you know, with a crawl at the bottom of the screen and whatnot. And the whole film is about kind of juxtaposing truths and lies. There are all of these great turns of phrases, and I mean all, throughout the entire thing. How do I know it's real? It's real because I tell it. When the unreal is taken for the real, then the unreal becomes unreal. And as a viewer, as we get to thinking about each of these phrases or exchanges, no sooner do we begin to unpack it than the next one lands coming out of the speakers, right? All of which is to say there are these compounding and cascading references to the slipperiness of reality and truth. How much of that was intended to be addressing? our present in the sense that actors such as the Russian state and the Murdoch state, if you will, are impacting things around the world with truths and lies equally. Yeah, well, so that work, I would say, started with another work called Today's Top Stories, which is almost like a sketch for that work. It's just one, it's almost like just one of the screens. And that work was actually the first work that the storyteller appeared in. And the storyteller usually appears as a news presenter. I say, you know, their day job is a news presenter. And sometimes they, you know, appear in other works in different guises. But this character, yeah, was was really came about in 2020 after a year of watching the news, you know, being trapped in being trapped in my room 
watching the news, trying to get a sense of what is going on and just, yeah, being reminded again and again that the, this, this platform, which is supposed to be delivering a sense, you know, objective knowledge is really just a manipulation. And, you know, it's, it's, it's exactly that. It's, it's a form of storytelling that creates binaries of objective and subjective knowledge. And, um, yeah, you just really got a sense, especially in that year and, and the years following. I mean, now, definitely in this moment of being manipulated. 2020 being the pandemic year, the first pandemic year, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you say trapped inside, you really mean... <laughs> we no, yeah, very work. literally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to wrap up with your interest in Octavia Butler. Uh, a while back, you got, I don't know, a, fel- a fellowship or residency is the right word, or, or, or just that you got a grant to go to the Huntington Library in San Marino, California, roughly across the street from Pasadena, where uh, you got to do a deep dive into the Octavia Butler papers. Pretty rare and unusual. The Huntington has not always been, not only thrown, not always thrown its arms open to artists, shall we say. What did you get out of literally getting your hands into the Butler archive and getting your eyes onto Butler stuff? What from the physical experience of the of that material informed you, worked your way into the work? What did you get from being in it that like reading the books can't do? Yeah, I mean it was a really extraordinary opportunity to to hold her papers that she had written on. I think the, yeah, her papers were, it wasn't just like manuscripts and like notes. It was, there was, you know, personal items in there. So you got a sense of like how her life informed her work. And I found that really inspirational. But what I really came away from after that visit was the importance of storytelling, which I think you can really see in my work now. She understood that like storytelling is how you make people see how the world could be different or, you know, you immerse people in, in narratives and the way that she wrote, I think she was very generous. Like, you know, she wanted to take people on a journey with her writing. You know, there's, there's this, there's, there's several note cards that I think are very imprinted in my mind, but one of them, which I really think about a lot is one that says, you know, reach the most amount of people with storytelling and make people feel. And I think that is, yeah, that is really what I try to do in my practice now. I try to tell stories that really envelop people and I try to, you know, change their minds through the act of of world building. I think that shows. I think you're a vastly better storyteller than most video artists. I mean, I think think that's a major distinction between your work and what a lot of other video and film artists who show in art museums do. Thank you. Sinway Keen, thanks very much. Thank you so much for having me. Opening February 15th, the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, presents Maria Magdalena Campos-Pons, Behold, a monographic exhibition of a visionary voice in photography, immersive installation, painting, and performance. The exhibition spans nearly four decades of the artist's work, transporting viewers across geographies, mediums, and spiritual practices. It's the first multimedia survey of Campos Ponce's work since 2007. 
Maria Magdalena Campos Pons Behold is organized by the Brooklyn Museum and the J. Paul Getty Museum. The Manil Collection in Houston, Texas, presents an ephemeral wall drawing by Swiss artist Mark Bauer. The work is the fifth installment of an ongoing series at the Manil Drawing Institute. The 36-foot-wide charcoal and pastel mural, titled Resilience, Drawing the Line, combines powerful imagery from art history with contemporary references to create a thought-provoking narrative. On view at the Manil Drawing Institute through summer 2024, this work will evolve over the course of its year-long display. Find details at manil.org. The Manil Collection is always free. Located in the heart of downtown Berkeley at the edge of the University of California campus, the Berkeley Art Museum and Pacific Film Archive is one of the nation's leading university art museums, a locally rooted, globally relevant institution that connects audiences with the most exciting artists and filmmakers of our time. Uniquely dedicated to both art and film, BAMFA hosts more than a dozen art exhibitions, hundreds of film screenings, and countless public programs each year, with a growing emphasis on contemporary work by Black, Asian, and Latinx voices. To see what's on view and plan a visit, go to BAMFA.org. Welcome back. Next up, my 2017 conversation with Jacqueline Kiyomi Gork. The Carpenter Center for the Visual Arts at Harvard University is presenting Poems of Electronic Air, Gork's East Coast institutional debut through April 7th. The exhibition combines recent sculpture with a commissioned site-specific installation made for the Carpenter Center's Le Corbusier-designed building. Gork has previously exhibited at the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts in San Francisco, SF MoMA, Sculpture Center in New York, BAM PFA, and in the Hammer Museum's 2019 Made in LA Biennial. Quick note, this show is taped on the occasion of an exhibition at SF MoMA when the artist's name was Jacqueline Kiyomi Gordon. Also, we're about to hear clips from Inside You Is Me, which is up at SF MoMA, and from Our Best Machines Are Made of Sunshine, a 2009 installation Gordon presented at Queen's Nails Projects in San Francisco. My primary interest involves the role of the listener in an environment and how one receives and experiences information. And then also that role in the way of how one feels like they can express or also make noises themselves or participate in that space. Have I made anything for a seated audience? I, I don't consider myself to really be a composer. I say artist. I'm not, I don't know. I, that's why I actually, with this piece, that's why I kind of collaborate with a lot of musicians and composers and I bring them into this environment. So to get their understanding and their language around sound and space, and then that's kind of what I manipulate and then kind of work with in the environment. The sound that people will hear is a collaboration between me and Letitia Tsunami. And I invited Letitia into the space and asked her to what kind of her initial response would be to walking around this environment and hearing kind of where the speakers were and what kind of roles the speakers were playing in the system. And then we worked together kind of coming up with some ideas around a palette of sounds. And then she wrote a max patch that then I used in my own max patches 
to kind of author the movement of the sound in the space. It's a multi-channel piece. It's got 14.1 channels, but they're not in any traditional multi-channel configuration. There sort of is a quad system in the ceiling, but that's about as traditional as it gets. Everything else is, is kind of the speakers are located in, in different ways that there makes no sweet spot. There's no one center point to listen to. So that makes kind of adjusting the sound so that it kind of moves the person through the space. Or you might be in one location and hear the sound from a totally different location. And the, the volume of that sound will be different, you know, if you are near a speaker or far from a speaker. So kind of the environment is created to really and it'd be very individual experiences. So I just would like to say that the sound file that people will be listening to is a recording that I made wearing ear-based microphones. So they're microphones that rest right over my ears and I'm walking through the space. So what you're hearing is my own experience of walking through the space. It's not a stereo bounce from the computer. It's a recording of the environment. And so you know, it's just a representation of the experience. It's not an actual mastered, edited, anything recording. So the built space inside the installation is made up of eight movable walls. Maybe I should say eight movable partitions. They have various materials that hang off of them. They can have up to six layers of materials with one to two inches of space in between each material that's hanging. And the materials range from vinyl, kind of like vinyl strip doors to kind of heavy velour curtains that you might see in a theater, moving blankets, felt, uh, wool, raw wool, kind of ruggy things, and silicon. It's all materials that either reflect, absorb, or stops, or do all, all three things, sound. So thinking about kind of how purpose sort of or the construction of sound isolation and sound dampening and um, kind of bringing those Bringing those elements really kind of out visually, but also they're still very useful. Like I pick them for their use 
for their functionality as well as their visual kind of cues and what they kind of can express to me and, and about the environment. There's even a rug from Ikea in there that really spoke to me about the space, you could say. So that's sort of where I, you know, the formal elements of it are these materials hanging off of the wall. Okay. And then the layers of the materials, how they're layered, also affects how they perform. So whether or not I have a piece of silicon on one surface or have a you know carpet or a felt on one surface, the sound is going to reflect or be absorbed in different ways. So what I tend to do with the piece and how I build it is that the walls come in and then I rearrange the materials based off of kind of what effect I'd like in that particular location with the walls and then kind of play with it a bit. The more kind of folds or the more randomness or the more kind of predictableness of it is all things that I like to play with. So the forms that I am creating are influenced by my interest in sculpture for sure. And also, you know, it sort of comes from my interest originally kind of in minimalism. And then when I started to experience more uh, minimal sculpture and the actual spaces that that you experience those in institutions, you know, it's really funny. This one experience I had, I was down in San Diego during the uh, Pacific Standard time, the big one, the first one, seeing all of the uh, minimalist work at the Museum of Contemporary Art down there. And there were all of the Larry Bell tubes and they were a lot of them had uh, mirrored surfaces, you know, in them. And I found myself kind of being annoyed by how many people were being reflected in the room. And then I, I felt kind of weird about that, but I didn't want us to be in the room alone. And I felt kind of conflicted about the experience of them and I kind of realized, I was like, wow, is this stuff made to be experienced alone or is it made to be experienced with others? And it sort of triggered me into thinking about, it's not like a one-to-one, but it's part of the Venn diagram of visual, of, of listening experiences. You know, there's some things that happen visually that cross over into listening and there's other things that are quite separate in those two isolated experiences. And so there was something in there that I thought about in regards to, you know, when you go to a show and you hear people talking, sometimes you know, you just want to listen to the music. And so you have to concentrate on the music and not concentrate on the sound of people talking. But I've also been to, say, a, you know, outdoor festival. So I went to like a Gaigaku festival in Japan. And it was so interesting because it was all gravel around. And the sound was actually quite quiet, but very, very striking. And the texture of people walking around on this gravel behind me, and sure, they weren't talking. It was just footsteps on gravel, but it added so much into the experience and the relationship between me and the stage and everybody around me and the experience. And so, you know, thinking about it's not just these objects, it's how these objects live in this environment, but they are still objects. So how do I treat them? And definitely in thinking about the types of materials that I use, I mean, felt or blankets and, you know, all these things are very loaded. There's lots of, I mean, almost say pedagogy around it in some way. But, but they also have a function. They're also used. Moving blankets, you see them, you know, on the street. You see them, I don't know, they're just, they're, they're these very strange objects. They have functionality, yet the zigzag stitching. 
the colors that they're made out of, the recycled materials or the newer plastic materials almost. I don't know, there's something in there. So I kind of I play around between really looking at them as pure form and then looking at them as what they're functioning as and even how I display them, layering them up in certain ways, pushing more mass to one direction or pushing different surface to another direction. Those are intuitively done. So the walnut box at the end of the installation is a toolkit for kind of recreating a lot of different experiences or a lot of different installations uh, with the same setup. So the movable wall, but the materials could change. And the multi-channel sound system, but the number of speakers, the type of that is variable. The collaborations are all variable. It can be with music, it could be with speech, it could be with dance. All these things are very variable, can shift and change depending on the environment that is asking the box to be activated. So uh, when the piece was created originally at the lab in San Francisco, which is where the box came from, with that show, it was a very different environment. The setting was a one-month-long residency where I had the keys and the total rights to do whatever I wanted in the space with X amount of money. And so I had a 22-channel sound system that was made up of three different types, four different types of speakers. And we had 10 walls that moved around. The materials were... Slightly different than the show at SF MoMA because I wanted to have more deadening of sound. So we also had like sheets of acrylic inside the walls or drywall in addition to everything else. And the walls were also a lot larger because the space of the lab was like 5,000 square feet or something like that. So there's a lot of room for me to play around. But because I could kind of do it at once again, doing one every week with different people. So we had a lot of uh, really amazing things to do. I worked with two amazing choreographers. We had yeah, three musicians that I worked And I kind of incorporated into this built and kind of ongoing environment that people could come in and experience, but only twice a week. So it was only open to the public really, oh, three times a week. But, but it was limited, you know. So I had a lot of time to be in there by myself to redesign, redevelop, and move the walls and change the sound constantly. Versus someplace like SF MoMA, I'm kind of in there. I install the piece, it's done, it's set. So it's a very different kind of activation of the box based off of kind of what the institution or what the space kind of, you know, kind of goes for. Because I, I found that I could build, to me at least, this, this piece is a it's kind of a, a research piece, almost an experimental piece where I can learn a lot about different environments by playing with them. And also inviting others to kind of experience it with me, too. And so I'm learning about others as well as learning about what the space itself kind of can lead towards. So that's why everything's so adaptable, just kind of learning like what what works, what doesn't work. I, the first the, this piece originated sort of from research at MPAC in upstate New York. And there it was a completely different beast because of, you know, that space and what that space and the uniqueness of that space but it was similar in the sense that I had, I think, 10 to 15 walls built. I had a multi-channel sound system that I could move around. It wasn't stationary. And, and I brought in choreographers from New York who came up and worked with me. And so it's just it's kind of like an ongoing morphine project. So Linda 
and Tammy three and four are part of a different series of, to me at least, they're more sculptural because they kind of can act in a lot of different environments through the use of these directional speakers. They're ultrasonic directional speakers that I've been using for, gosh, I've been using probably for like seven years now or so. I found out about them through researching LRAD systems and kind of new speaker designs and uses of sound in military um, applications, which was some of my research that I did in grad school. And I became really fascinated with these speakers because they, the operator of those speakers does not experience the same environment as the people that the speaker is being projected onto. So there's a separation between the operator and the listener. And that separation is due to the technology and the, and the space. So I started to work with ceramics at a uh, residency at Mills through their AP. API program. And I was able to kind of just play around with trying to make my own diffusion panels or diffusion tiles is what I was trying to do. And trying to make them as random and as organic as possible. Diffusion tiles are usually made out of wood or, you know, they're they're made to be very random. So that when sound hits the wall, it kind of spreads around the space. And I was really inspired actually by the diffusion panels that I saw and were designed at Impact. They're very specific. And I talked a lot to one of the acousticians, Zachary Bellinger, who worked on them. And one thing that came to my mind of randomness and being able to angle them in all these different ways, like why not use ceramics, which to me is like very organic and random and kind of references, or I wanted them to reference sort of like the, the curvatures of the body and how also as humans, like we also absorb and reflect sound. We are, we play a major role when we sit inside of a concert hall versus when we don't in the shape of that sound. So I was kind of playing around with surface and geometry and the directional speakers just really heightened that relationship between surface and, and in experience. And so I sort of started, that's where I kind of started was with the directional speakers and the tiles. And then I built forms around them so that when you walked around the sculptures, you were getting different kind of sonic reflections as you're walking around. And the piece itself is really quite simple sound wise. It's really just tones that in their nature, how they reflect and how they pattern with each other kind of sound differently depending on where you are in the space. You know, Lamont Young's Dream House in New York is a great example of this technique, you could say. So it's a very simple sound piece, but then your experience of it as you walk around and hearing all the difference in tones that happen, depending on how close you are or far you are from the materials versus the architecture of the space, changes. So, and I've installed it a few times, which is really fun because then I can... You know, it really is different in every space, but it works.
So our best machines are made of sunshine was a 4.1, but 26 channel sound installation that I made at a space called Queen's Nails. It was on Mission Street in San Francisco. And that was my first kind of traditional white cubed gallery experience. But the gallery itself was an artist-run space that had a lot of different things going on inside of it. So it was really, it was really quite a comfortable environment. And I had known the people who'd run it for a while. So that piece was, it sort of started where I just sat in the gallery and I just kind of was trying to think, you know, just trying to experience the space and what my desires for the space were. And it kind of came to me wondering what it would be like to take away the front wall that went out onto Mission Street, but only sonically. You know, how would I create a sonically transparent wall that was very visually captivating in a way? Uh, it's, it is inspired by a lot of different experiences, such as kind of wall, cement wall textures of brutalist architecture and anechoic chambers and even the movie THX 1138 <laughs> a little bit, just in the sense that, that that film used only like the sound from uh, like the microphones that were on the set. And then, of course, I'm sure it was elaborated onto it, but it has this really kind of the, this feeling of space in that movie through the sound is really unique. And it was also part of it was even filmed in the bar stations. At least that's what I read in San Francisco. So so a lot of different, at that time, a lot of different information was kind of going into my head. But the piece itself was just like another sound system. There were two microphones out in front of the street, and they picked up the sound of the cars and the bus was driving by on mission. And the bus in San Francisco have these really loud hydraulic kind of lifts that are inside of them. And so there's a bus stop right in front of the gallery. So when the bus would stop and the lift would be activated, it would make this really loud sound. And um, the microphone sound were coming into the gallery, were being spatialized and affected and played back. And the speakers were all built. I made all the speakers inside of the sculptures and they were all, each wall had six speakers inside of it, but just one channel of audio. But the speakers were all facing kind of different directions. It was a really muddy environment, but really fun. And then I invited performers to come in and play on the sound system. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.